Hello. Welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast with me, Joe Wisby. My guest today is Joe Hagen, who joins me to discuss his book, Sticky Fingers, The Life and Times of Jan Wenner and Rolling Stone magazine. Joe Hagen is a special correspondent for Vanity Fair and has written for the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. Rolling Stone magazine has had a huge influence over the Beatles story, from John's 1970 Lenin Remembers interview, the February 81 issue dedicated to John just after his murder, and its dismissal of almost all of Paul's solo work. Joe's book paints an uncompromising picture of Jan and Rolling Stone, uh, and shares with us the stories behind this incredible cultural phenomenon and how it influenced the Beatles story. Well, Joe Hagen, hello. Welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast. How are you? I am fantastic. Uh, it's a fine uh, Sunday afternoon here in the United States, and it's lovely to talk to you, Joe. Well, it's lovely to talk to you too. Uh, so we're here to talk about uh, Sticky Fingers, the life and times of Jan Wenner and Rolling Stone magazine. Um, you said in other interviews that I've heard that uh, this project started unbeknownst to you when you met Jan Wenner in a coffee shop uh, just outside of New York. I'm curious to find out how that one meeting led to this whole project starting. Sure. That was back in 2012 or 13, I believe. It was uh, just some summer afternoon, and I was pulling up to the, my local coffee shop where I would sometimes do a little work and uh, instantly recognized Jan Wenner because he's sort of a big figure in the media world. And I'd actually met him before, but not in any kind of intimate way. And uh, I went and introduced myself. And one thing led to another. I was, he had just moved up to this area where I live outside of the city. He had bought a big estate and he invites me over. And, um, you know, I get to see and meet and talk to him in this sort of real one-on-one basis and not in a way that I would have ordinarily met any editor of his of his fame and uh Annie Leibovitz the photographer was there when I met him it was during we were having lunch and I got to swim in a swimming pool it was sort of almost like you know am I in a dream here this was, was a it was a wild experience and and after that I got to you know go over and occasionally have lunch with him and talk with him and of course I would just it was really just he didn't know anybody in the area, and I just happened to be the guy who showed up, and he liked that I was a magazine journalist. And, of course, I was fascinated with him, and I was like, oh, Bob Dylan, tell me about meeting Bob Dylan. Tell me about meeting John Lennon. And, and he saw that I was fascinated. He knew of my career, and then one thing led to another. I would say about a year later, he asked me if I wanted to write his biography. I mean, he was a very, he's a very mercurial man. And he was legend for his temperamental <laughs> behavior. Let's put it that way. And um, you know, a lot of he'd fired a lot of people. He was a yeller. He was somebody who had um, gotten to be a media mogul not because he was a, a extraordinarily easygoing guy. Let's put it that way. I uh, but so you know the bottom line is I didn't say yes right away when he asked me if I'd be interested in his writing his biography. Now let's you know. Let's take a step back here. Uh, when somebody asks you to write their biography, they think they're worth having a biography written of them, and they're not dead yet. So instantly you know that gives you a sense of his ego, 
right? And he had an incredible, I had really never been in the presence of somebody with this level of ego, one might say narcissism. And so it was, a. but you know, so on the one hand, I saw kind of an opportunity to write about somebody with that level of ego. And because as a journalist, you, uh, like I have said this before in the past, but you know, I'm a devotee of some of the new journalists like Tom Wolfe. And if you're, if you have that little radar in your head and you meet somebody like him, you think of the journalistic possibilities of writing about such a person. And so, so I didn't say yes, but I, then I worked out a deal with him where it would be an independent book. And I told him the only way I was going to do it is if it was an independent biography. And that was important to me to be able to write the, what I wanted, because imagine this guy hanging over your shoulder crossing T's and dotting I's for you, that's going to drive you insane. And so, and it took him a while to come around to that because he's a controlling person by nature. And so we worked it out over time and, you know, the rest is history. Uh, yes, certainly is. Uh, so obviously we're going to come at this from a, a Beatles perspective and the book is full of Beatles stories, which we'll cover over the next hour or so. You write in the book that there's a suggestion that Jan started Rolling Stone just to meet John Lennon. What was Jan's fascination with John and the Beatles? Well, the story is that he started the magazine to meet John Lennon. That's true in a kind of general way. You know, he was in San Francisco in 1966-67 and was a, you know, had a front row seat to the countercultural revolution that was happening in front of him. So, you know, in the kind of like broad spectrum of the rock and roll revolution of the 60s, the Beatles for him were the sin qua nun of the whole thing. So obviously he wanted to meet any Beatle that he could meet. And early on when he was just formulating Rolling Stone, he was writing already writing letters to, uh, you know, the Beatles PR men to to try to get uh, access of some kind. And um, it didn't work out right away, but it did eventually because he was a very relentless guy. And so when I was beginning to do the book, I had to write a book proposal, right? And so I asked Jan Winter for access to his archive, and his archive was the kingdom. I mean, the stuff that he had in there was, you know, would make you cry. It was so great. And the first thing I did was like, oh, well, let me write about your relationship with John Lennon and make that the basis of a proposal. And so the first material in his archive that I had access to were folders of his correspondence with the Beatles and his correspondence with John Lennon in particular, because John Lennon became sort of his access point to the Beatles. And over time, his point of view about the Beatles was heavily informed by John and Yoko. And for those who didn't grow up listening to reading Rolling Stone or know much about it, I mean, Jan Winter was a you know first-class fan you know, he was a mega fan and he loved, when he loved the Beatles, he loved the Beatles, you know, and he was like infatuated with John Lennon. He had seen A Hard Day's Night, the movie, that was his conversion experience. And he instantly gravitated towards John Lennon because he liked the, the wit, right? And he thought he was handsome and he was like a, you know, we don't have to convince anybody listening to this podcast of the virtues of John Lennon, but he got it instantly and loved it. And, um, from that day forward, he was a Beatles devotee. And in, in the kind of canon of Jan's um, worldview, which would later inform Rolling Stone, they were it, right? Mm, so the the prologue of the book is this fascinating story of Jan's weekend that he spends with John and Yoko. Uh, tell us, first of all, a little bit about 
what they did and, and how that weekend came about. And maybe more importantly, how genuine was that friendship between the three of them? Was there an element of them kind of using each other? Or, or was there a genuine affection between John, Yoko and Yan? Well, no, I don't. They had never met to that point, so the affection was, you know, one-sided. It was Jan loving John, but also they had developed a kind of um, mutually gratifying, pragmatic relationship. So really where the relationship begins is a couple of years before when John and Yoko did the nude photo of themselves, and they wanted to make it the cover of, of an album, and... Uh, it was obviously caused a big stir and it was not allowed to be printed and circulated in the United States due to censorship. And so Ralph Gleason, who the jazz critic, who was the co-founder of Rolling Stone and Jan's mentor, uh, suggested, hey, let's put that in Rolling Stone. If they're not, you know, we can make some noise with this. We can create controversy. And Jan did it. And it was like the first time that Rolling Stone really made some noise in, in as a magazine. It was, it was about a year into their publication, and suddenly they have this nude photo on the on the cover of John and Yoko, and it makes a big stir, and they have to print more copies. And so instantly Jan recognizes and learns, this is part of his education as a, as a publisher, ah, controversy. This sells. We can sell a lot of magazines if we do things like this. And, of course, John and Yoko loved it because it infuriated the other Beatles, which was part of John's uh, aim, you know, to show that I'm my own entity with Yoko separate from the Beatles. And so what Jan learns, in addition to the controversy thing, is that he can become a helpful vehicle for John to carve out a different path. And so, yeah, this, this relationship was very mutually uh, satisfying for s- selfish reasons on both sides. So when he gets later on, when John and Yoko are coming to San Francisco and they're going to meet Jan for the first time, uh, this is 1970, uh, the spring of 1970, this is like, you know, he's finally going to meet this the publisher who has been helping him because Jan would publish anything that John and Yoko sent him or said, right? And by the way, and meanwhile, the rest of the Beatles, Paul and and George, are looking at this, and they begin to develop an attitude towards Jan as well, but it's not the same one, right? They see him as uh, John's uh, mouthpiece. They see Rolling Stone as that. And so uh, this becomes the a big narrative thread in my book because it lasts for many years. I mean, right up till the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, right? It's like that these that Jan is basically John's guy. So he comes to they come to San Francisco and they're in the middle of primal scream therapy, right? With Arthur Janoff down in LA. And they have been trying to kick heroin, which doesn't is not successful, but it's temporarily successful. And they've been screaming, you know, in their house down in LA and then they come and they're in the middle of this and the let it be movie has just come out which uh they had seen some some of John and Yoko but they had not seen the final cut of it and they were uh driving around with Jan Jan was giving them a tour of San Francisco it was Jan and his wife Jane and they were in his Porsche and he was doing everything he could to impress them you know, he was putting them up in a nice hotel in San Francisco, and he gave him a tour of the offices of Rolling Stone, which at that point were new, and so he was very 
proud of it, you know. And uh, some of the employees, Rolling Stone would recall them walking through, and the memory of many of them was how tiny they were, you know, that they, you know, this mythic rock star is actually this little guy. And so they're driving around and they see that Let It Be is playing at a, at a theater in San Francisco, and the decision is made, hey, let's all go in and watch it. And so this is going to be, whoa, imagine this. It's like Jan and his wife are going to get to watch the movie that a lot of people associate with the breakup of the Beatles. And uh, they're going to get to watch it while sitting right next to the Beatles, which, you know, for a fan, this is the ultimate thing, right? Um, and so they do. And kind of the amazing part of the story is that it's such an emotional uh, experience for John and Yoko that they're all crying while watching Let It Be, especially at the rooftop concert. You know, this moment uh, is so powerful because it really is. It's a powerful performance anyway. It's a beautiful moment. And everybody's crying. And then afterwards, they come out of the theater, and they're all sort of emotional. And Jan, his description of it is they all get into a group hug, and they're all kind of like uh, having this emotional moment, as he calls it. I'm, I, I was coming to their emotional rescue, as Jan puts it. Which, if you think of it in terms of Jan and his self, his sort of image of himself, uh, he, it was probably like slightly overblown in his mind because obviously he would like to posit himself as being in this historical moment, but it did happen. And Jane uh, also described that moment as well. And um, so in that, as we know, as you will learn in the book, those who uh, pick up sticking fingers, this is just the um, preview of what of other things that are about to happen in this relationship. So the, the next point in the story, which is a a huge point for us Beatle uh, people is the December the 8th, 1970 interview that John and Yoko give to Jan and Rolling Stone. Just one interview, one afternoon, but the impact that it had and would go on to have across the Beatles world was seismic. Tell us a little bit about Jan's view of that. Did you speak to him much about that interview? Did he have fond memories of it? Uh, how did he feel about it? Well, he's very proud of, of it. And he saw it as like, um, I got this incredible exclusive. I mean, he saw it as a journalist. Like, this was an amazing thing to get. And I think that he was also taken aback by how candid John Lennon ended up being. You know, he came in and it seemed like it was going to be an uptight situation because Alan Klein was present and also recording the interview and probably had a lot of concern about what John was going to say. And of course, Yoko was there too, and she's chiming in and it, you know, it didn't necessarily have the hallmarks at the outset of an interview that was going to be as profound as it was. I mean, one of the greatest celebrity interviews of the 20th century, frankly. And, and yet really it was all John Lennon's outpouring. I mean, John Winter as an interviewer, he's fine. You know, he's not uh, an extraordinary interviewer. But and as I describe it in the in the book, I mean, he just starts lobbing out a few basic questions, and he what he gets in return is a flood of grievance and rebuke of uh, from John towards his the other Beatles, and basically everything that he'd had to keep bottled up for during the time that he was with the group is all coming out, and you know every little kind of and probably was coming out more angry than than he actually might have actually felt over the long run. I think he regretted, John Lennon regretted some of the things he ended up saying in that in those interviews. I mean, he's trashing George Martin. He's trashing Paul's first album. He's trashing Paul. He's, he's really just um, 
full of, you know, I mean, John Lennon was, could be, and often was a very vindictive, angry guy. He was an angry young man. And all that anger is on full display in this interview. And um, I think Jan Wenner's memory of it is that it was like, oh my God, I just got the most massive exclusive. It's international news. It's going to, you know, and I, and so he decides to run it over two issues, edits it to a degree, but it's, it's really the full thing. And, um, and by the way, <laughs> the interesting coincidence here, or just incidentally, and but profoundly, uh, the photographer that he recruits to take the pictures is Annie Leibovitz, right? And she has her own version of this story about how Jan was really nervous about this whole thing, and he wanted it to go right. And, um, and she kind of shows up, and she's really kind of at the outset of her career, and she's very green. And um, the kind of hilarious part of it is the cover picture of John Lennon on the first issue is a was a, a light meter reading that Annie Leibovitz took that Jan picked against her wishes. She was outraged that he would choose the light meter reading photo over the ones she composed, you know, on purpose, right? But it was a kind of cool picture. It was like this very stark, up-close picture of his face and um, almost like a bust-like portrait. So, uh, you know, the story now is that Jan realizes that he's got a tiger by the tail here. And now the backstory was that Jan made a deal with Jan to do this interview, saying this is my interview. I'm letting you run this interview, but I own the content of this. So right off the bat, John Lennon has a very sophisticated view of his own importance and, and the value of his content, as we would say years later about this kind of thing. And he makes a deal with Jan that you can run this in Rolling Stone, but you cannot exploit it in any other way. Because at the time, it was already a thing that you might think of doing as putting out a record of it. And Jan considered, I would like to maybe put out an album of this interview, right? People would buy the hell out of that, he was thinking. And um, he's convinced after the interviews are published by a guy who is a business partner of his at the time, hey, maybe you want to publish this as a book. I mean, we could make a lot of money. And Jan had just started a book imprint, uh, Straight Arrow Press. And... Um, he begins to consider, and in the very Jan Winter fashion and in Jan Winter character, realizes, well, I made that deal with him, but business is business here, and I'm a journalist, and this is something I think I got to do. And um, he begins to correspond with Lenin about this, and Lenin is very clear. No, do not publish a book of this interview. We made a deal. This is my interview. You were not to do this. And what does Jan Winter do? He does it anyway. He takes a, a deal, I think it was $40,000, to have a publisher press this book with his imprint on it, Straight Arrow Books, and he publishes the book of the interviews. And that book has been through many pressings since then. It's like an, a legendary book for Beatles fans. Uh, but it was the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of its relationship with John Lennon because Lennon was infuriated with him. And as Yoko Ono described to me in my interview with her, Jan called him while he was in a hotel somewhere and told him, hey, I'm publishing this book, but I'm going to send you six free copies, is the way she described it. And she said Jan, uh, that John Lennon was furious and said a lot of harsh things to Jan and then hung up on him. And there, in the correspondence that I got to read 
um, Jan sent him many follow-up letters saying, begging him to like, let's bury the hatchet, come to dinner at my house. He says, I'll invite Jerry Garcia over and we'll have dinner. And it's like this really kind of pathetic plea for, uh, for him to forgive him. And John Lennon's reply is, you know, print my letter of that he had sent him, this angry, furious letter, print it in Rolling Stone, then we'll talk. And of course, Jan's not going to print this letter because it will make it obvious to all that he has betrayed John Lennon. And so the upshot is, is that John Lennon doesn't speak to him for the rest of his life. And that Jan, in, in deciding that that interview, as profound as it was and as, as book-worthy as it was, in Lennon's mind, he had broken a trust and thus ended the kind of uh, mutually gratifying relationship that they had had in the 60s was over by 1971. He said he regretted it and that it was a mistake that he made. At the same time, th- that is not a natural feeling for Jan Winter because he's not somebody who has had a lot of regrets. And if you were to ask him straight up, do you have any regrets, he would, that would not be among them. The regrets he has are mostly the ones in which he made a bad business decision and didn't make a ton of money, right? You know, listen, he's a publisher. He's like a rapscallion in a lot of ways. You know, who, who's the guy that published Oz? He's very similar in kind of another kind of like uh, rogue character who stepped on a few people along the way and, you know, broke the proverbial egg to make the omelet. Uh, and that's Jan too. And um, in his mind, you know, hey, the Beatles just broke up. What do I need John Lennon for anymore, right? He was moving on to bigger and better things. And in fact, around that time, he was even moving beyond rock and roll because a lot of people thought even by 71, Beatles are broken up, rock is dead. I mean, it's kind of hysterical and hilarious to think about that, but people were already talking like that in the early 70s. And for Jan, the next step in life, and as an entrepreneur, was to start publishing um, Hunter S. Thompson. Hunter S. Thompson became his new rock star, his new John Lennon. And in many ways, Hunter S. Thompson was you know, what John Lennon was to Jan in the 60s and to Rolling Stone in the 60s. Now Hunter S. Thompson was going to be for Rolling Stone in the 70s. So it's an interesting moment. And there's, it's very, it's like one thing happens after the other. He betrays John Lennon, and then he starts publishing Hunter S. Thompson. So from John Lennon, we must go to the other side of the coin. We must talk about a certain Paul McCartney. Uh, first of all, you, you got to go and speak to Paul. You, you came over to the UK and yes, and you met him. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, Paul was really open in, in your interview. Was was that a surprise to you? It was shocking. Totally shocking to me. First of all, Jan took the attitude, yeah, talk to everybody and everybody. I'm not going to hold you back. You know, you want to talk to Paul McCartney? Here's his contact. You go ahead and interview him. That'd be great. And that was partly the hubris of Jan Wenner, you know, that he believes that everybody's just going to celebrate him in these interviews because Rolling Stone, let's be honest, is an iconic publication. It had a huge impact on the counterculture and on the youth culture of the 60s and 70s. It defined it in many ways. So I didn't know what to expect. And in fact, I was thinking in my own mind and before all this, well, I wasn't expecting much. I was thinking it'll be kind of like conventional pablum about how great Rolling Stone is and what a genius Jan is. But I said, at least I'll get to meet Paul McCartney and that'll be wonderful, right? So to me, it was like a win-win. So 
in advance, I was I had different things I wanted to ask him about. I wanted to ask him about that John Lennon interview, what he thought when he saw John Lennon saying these terrible things about him. Um, I, and I wanted to ask about his attitude towards Rolling Stone as a consequence, and did it change, and what's your relationship with them now, and, you know, obvious things you'd ask. The one thing that I brought with me was this Polaroid that I found in Jan's archive, a Polaroid photograph. It's a remarkable photograph of, and it had a message written on the little white space that you see, and it said, um, uh, how do you sleep, question mark, question mark, question mark. And it, then it said, um, Palm Sunday, 1974. And I thought, huh, that's so mysterious. I mean, obviously that's the title of a song that John Lennon wrote about Paul, a very cutting one. And it sort of obviously spoke to the acrimony in the, after the Beatles breakup. And, but it was in 1974, which is an interesting year because that's during the time that John Lennon's living in LA. So what's the picture? The picture is uh, John Lennon, Paul McCartney, Linda McCartney, and um, Keith Moon, and May Pang. And, and they all, a couple of them have pool sticks, and they seem to be in a garden environment, like the like a little stone garden behind a house somewhere, and they're kind of convorting. You know what I mean? It's like a little bit of a comic picture. And um, Paul has his sort of like mustache uh, goatee combo going. Anyway, I didn't know what this photo was, but I thought I'll bring it with me. The interview took place um, in his studio, which is near his his country estate. There was a big, beautiful black windmill, right out, like a Dutch windmill, right outside of his studio. And it was like, you know, Hobbiton. It was just this beautiful, like, rural play. And there's bunny rabbits hopping around. To me, the whole thing was just gorgeous and wonderful. And his assistant picked me up at a train station and took me out there. And he was not yet arrived, but he had a couple of engineers in the studio who were mastering one of his solo records, Pipes of Peace, or one of those early early 80s, you know. And so I was just sort of waiting in the kitchenette area. And there was a Beatles calendar with John Lennon on it. And there was, um, and I went into the bathroom, and the bathroom was full of, like, Linda McCartney's cookbooks. And there were some, and it was just a really livable, kind of nice place. And uh, I was waiting, and then Paul came in. He was wearing all black, and he was immediately warm and, hello, nice to meet you, great, very nice guy right off the bat. And he said, let's go upstairs to my office. And it was like just a living room with tons of Beatles memorabilia everywhere. And uh, and it was kind of cozy, and he brought a little plate of cookies up with him, and he said, well, we'll eat these cookies, and we'll sit on this couch, and we'll just talk, right? Now, what's my state of mind? I'm just sort of like a little bit in shock, right? And uh, But I'm... As a journalist, I've met some celebrities in my life, and you have to keep your wits about you and try to stay focused. And I realized my goal here is to come away with something for my book, and I really have to stay focused. So, you know, you have some initial celebrity shock, and I had that. But I was like, okay, I got to really keep on my P's and Q's here and make sure that, you know, and you don't want to make yourself look like a jackass, right? Um, fawning or being too overly fanboyish. But so we sat down, and I began the interview. And very quickly, I would say, within two or three questions, I began to realize that he had a very definitive point of view, and he had things to say and to get off his shoulders. And I realized that he did not necessarily like Jan, and that he had a very skeptical point of view towards Rolling Stone dating back to the 60s, because of what I said right at the top, which is that he saw Rolling Stone as John Lennon's 
kind of ally and advocate. And as the Beatles broke up, the Rolling, Rolling Stone, I mean, this was a huge story for them, the breakup of the Beatles. And so they were constantly covering it. And they had been very skeptical and kind of trashed Paul McCartney's first solo efforts. I mean, they totally tore Ram apart, right? Which I personally completely disagree with because it's one of my favorite albums uh, ever. I think it's one of the greatest of the Beatles solo records. Um, you know, not everybody can agree, but that's me. And so at one point, we're talking about, you know, his feelings about the John Lennon interview, which he, you know, it hurt him. You know, it cut him. He was, he was insecure at the time. You know, he was isolated with Linda because they were in the middle of a lawsuit with the Beatles, you know, and so he felt isolated. He felt hurt and insecure, which, you know, when you hear Paul McCartney telling you that he feels insecure, you're, it's a little alarming. You're like, wow, wow. But, you know, he's an artist, right? And artists feel that way too. So I brought out at one point, I was like, look at this Polaroid picture and tell me what, what you think of it. And that unlocked Paul McCartney for the rest of the interview. He became very transparent and honest about his feelings. And he told me stories, some of which had been told before, but I had not heard them up to that point. And uh, it was about how Yoko had come to him and said, can you go out to John Lennon, bring a message on my behalf that I would take him back if he would kind of like stop all this foolishness and straighten up clean up and and romance me and bring me and and we could come back together and it would have some meaning coming from you and of course Paul had had very only acrimonious generally conversations with John Lennon up to that point so it was an opportunity for him too to kind of like reconnect with with Lennon and so he described going to that house in LA and he said I showed up around noon and uh, John was still asleep but out in the garden courtyard were uh, Jesse uh, Ed Davis, who was one of the kind of wingmen wing to John Lennon at the time, a party guy, and uh, Harry Nielsen. And so in the courtyard, there's Harry Nielsen, and he's with Linda, Paul was. And he, so, so I, I was just sort of idling in the, in the courtyard waiting for John to wake up. And he describes this story of, uh, and you may have heard this story, and maybe your listeners have, but uh, Harry Nielsen saying, hey, uh, would you like to try some angel dust, right? And McCartney is like, well, gee, what, what is that? He goes, well, it's like a elephant tranquilizer. And he goes, huh, well, uh, is it fun? And he says, and Nielsen sort of pauses for a second and thinks about it. And he's like, no, it's not. And he's just like, well, geez, I'm not going to do it then. And he's like, but that's how these guys were. He says, I was always considered the prig who kind of like was cautious about being too excessive and being a big rock star. And these guys were like, if they saw a cliff, they jumped off of it which is sort of basically the way he described it. And so he said, then finally John Lennon came out and hugged him. And he said that was really new because as we never really hugged before, he said. It was like we were tough mates, right? And it was not like us to do that. But he said this was a sort of new thing with John. He had discovered some new aspects of himself. And he said, and he said that John would always say to him, um, touching is good. Right. And and this was sort of like, hmm, he sort of like thought that's nice that John's like this now. And um, so he relayed the message and he hung out for a couple of days. And so, uh, there's a lot of pictures that May Pang took, some of which have been published from this period where they kind of were reconnecting. And so the interview was extraordinary. And it, as he tells it, he talks a lot about the impact of the breakup on him and how 
it was in that same year that he got this Polaroid. He didn't know who sent the Polaroid, by the way. That one of the reasons I asked him about it was like, did you send this? You know, where did this come from? He said, it's probably John sent it as some kind of like jab at Jan. And by the way, the envelope that it had come in to be sent to him, it said Johan Wiener. So obviously it was like a gag thing to send to Jan to try to like tease him. And, and But it also, in my interpretation of it, was partly that Jan had been dining out on their acrimony for so long, especially, you know, you know he Rolling Stone rose to prominence partly because of its access to John Lennon and because it was at the right place at the right time and because the Beatles breakup was such a core narrative for them. You, if you look in those Rolling Stones from 68 until the early 70s, it's a constant thing, you know. And, of course, later on, everybody knows that you could see the Beatles on the roll, a cover of Rolling Stone up until, like, 10 years ago. You know I mean? <laughs> it was a constant, right? It was a major mythological event uh, in the Rolling Stone pantheon. You know, later, Paul talks about how when John Lennon was killed, that really— solidified and ironically even though John Lennon hadn't spoken much or at all with with Jan personally he becomes like an icon partly because of his appearance with Yoko on the cover of Rolling Stone following his assassination and in Paul's mind and this was a weird thing because Paul says you know after that he becomes the James Dean figure he becomes it's solidified that he's the most important beetle the only beetle that matters right and Jan ends up becoming friends with Yoko Ono, social friends, kind of in the shallowest way possible. They're like, they have this mutual friend who's like a uh, furniture buyer and interior decorator, and they're all rich by this point, and they're all hanging out in Manhattan. And so she becomes part of their sort of rich social world. And consequently, Jan is smart enough to realize that the iconography of John Lennon is now going to be permanent. You know, there's no possibility of a Beatles reunion of any import at this point, and that Yoko realizes that he's going to be a partner in a new relationship that has to do with making John Lennon an icon, right? Yeah, so um, so you describe in the book the January 22nd, 1981 issue of Rolling Stone, uh, which has the iconic, and I, I hate the word iconic, but I think this really is an iconic picture of uh, naked John Lennon clasping onto a clothed Yoko uh, taken by the aforementioned Annie Leibovitz uh, and then you, you describe this as Jan's greatest achievement as a magazine editor that particular issue the, the whole book is full of drama but the drama around John's death and the days and weeks around it really comes across in that part of the book tell us why you feel that that issue is the greatest uh, and and of course as you say Yang goes to the Dakota to see Yoko quite quickly after John's death that's right so the context around this is that Rolling Stone began in San Francisco at the height of the the 60s counterculture and that defined the way that San Francisco came into the ears and pages and eyes of the, of the of the youth culture in the 60s had a lot to do with how it was presented in Rolling Stone magazine because it was presenting San Francisco point of view and that that San Francisco was this kind of like core of the idealism right but by the late 70s a lot of that is fading the 
the record industry has become much more uh, kind of concentrated and all-powerful in terms of how it defines what's going to be happening in music. And of course, Rolling Stone has become attached at the hip to the record industry. And Jan, at some point in the late 70s, decides, I need to get closer to Madison Avenue. I need to get closer to the culture that's, that is happening in New York City, including Saturday Night Live. Basically, American culture shifts from the West Coast to the East Coast in the late 70s. You know, Everybody knows the cultural touchstones there. It's Studio 54. It's Saturday Night Live. It's, it's punk. It's the Ramones. It's CBGBs. Although none of that, very little of that part was covered by... Rolling Stone. But so he moves the whole magazine over there and it changes the tone and the style and the temperature of Rolling Stone magazine itself. A lot of people who were part of founding the magazine didn't make it to New York, didn't go. Annie Leibovitz actually told me that that she thinks that Rolling Stone kind of died when they moved to New York. She it wasn't the same to her. The idealism got leached out and Jan became more focused on making money. And he became more focused on also connecting to Hollywood and, and bringing in other cultural streams and making them more prominent because he was the record industry was not enough to you know uh, finance the magazine. So the point is is that by the time you get up to 1980, December 1980, John Lennon has been kind of out of circulation for a while, but he's about to finally kind of come back into the mix with Double Fantasy. David Geffen is now his kind of business partner on that. He's, he's putting it out on Geffen Records. Geffen, it's David Geffen who convinces Lennon, we have to get with Rolling Stone to sell this this record. And John Lennon at this point is very pragmatic. He goes, we got to sell some records, so we'll do the interview. And it's not Jan doing it this time. It's Jonathan Cott, who had been with the magazine since the 60s. He was the through line in many ways. He had been a, a major contact between Rolling Stone and John Lennon in the late 60s because he was stationed in London. So he knew them. People who are big Beatles fans know Jonathan Cott's name very well. So he's the one sent out to do the interview. Now, one of the things that doesn't end up in the interview material that comes out is some conversation that has to do about Jan. And uh, because Jan had sent a question to be about like what their apartment looked like. Right, and I told you earlier that he's very fascinated with interior decorating at this point because he has a fancy apartment on the Upper East Side, and uh, and John Lennon is very dismissive of this question. He's like, and he sort of leans down into the microphone of Jonathan Cott's microphone. He's like, "Oh, Jan, you know, it's not. It's basically the same one you saw when you came out to visit us in England. It's the same furniture. A few things have changed, you know." And he's, it's a little bit like a backhand to Jan, and he's rolling his eyes at him essentially. So this interview and obviously the picture were taken for a very different issue, right? Or a different circumstance. But it's after that, instantly the media, this is an international news. This is a terrible international tragedy. Everybody is talking about it. It's across the news. And who are they going to go to to talk about it? Of course, they're going to go to the editor of Rolling Stone and ask him. And he was interviewed, I believe, by NBC. And evidently Yoko saw him on TV and called and, and and Jan looked pale and he's shaking and he's smoking a cigarette and he was nervous anyways and he, probably because he was doing a lot of cocaine which she was doing at the time and she reaches out to him and says come see me and partly it's because she wants to talk to him about that photo and what he's going to do with it because she's already thinking about what does this mean for us you know 
And basically, as Jan tells it, he says they kind of made it, had an understanding that he was going to take care of her and make it right for her in the pages of Rolling Stone and be somebody that she could rely on. And he says a friendship began there. I remember I talked to David Geffen. He goes, they weren't friends, you know, and that he was very dismissive of this whole thing. But they're kind of like catty with each other, these two. But the bottom line is the thing to know, and one of the most fascinating revelations for me was that when that issue of Rolling Stone was published with that iconic photo on the cover, the entire thing from front to back about John Lennon, Jan put a little secret message in the tiny, tiny, tiny print into the inner seam of the cover of that issue that no, not many people knew about. I would say hardly anybody knew about it. And you need a magnifying glass to read it. And it says, and I'm paraphrasing here, you know, I love you, John. I'm sorry. Yoko, hold on. I'll do what I said. And what it, that is a reference to him talking to Yoko and saying, I will do the right thing by you and make it right by you. And, you know, it's in a way it's closure to, in a kind of karmic apology to the first betrayal of 1971. And when I was discovering all of this, of course, as a writer, you're like, oh, my God, this is so powerful. This is so amazing. And um, it really is an iconic achievement, but it's also an iconic, it's an iconic achievement because it really defined the impact of John Lennon's death on that generation and what it meant. I mean, it really is like a kind of like heartfelt, devotional tombstone to a generational sense of idealism that had been built around the Beatles. And for Rolling Stone, it was the end of their of an era. It was the end of the first generation of Rolling Stone and what Rolling Stone had been when it was first begun. We didn't even mention that John Lennon was on the very first cover of Rolling Stone. It was a, a photo still of his appearance in How I Won the War. Um, right off the top, he defined what Rolling Stone was going to be about. And so here you have the death of John Lennon, and they put an entire issue to him. There's a secret message in there from Jan Wenner. This is really the end. It's an end cap to what I consider really, and I think Annie Leibovitz probably agreed, and a lot of other people did too, that was the Rolling Stone that meant something to everybody. The, thing, the, the years between 1967, when it was begun, and the death of John Lennon is the kind of like the core meaning of Rolling Stone magazine. And it was the core meaning of what the 60s and the Beatles meant to a lot of people. And those things were completely tied together. Jan, who can be very emotional uh, and almost blubberingly so, like about certain things, you know, when he's not being a hard ass, the other side of him is that he's... And almost like uh, kind of naively emotional. And he has that side of him, and I'm sure he was. I mean, he, he was interviewed on TV about it. You could see that he was shell-shocked like everybody else. And, you know, I asked him, though, also, like, before he died, while he was in New York, did you guys ever see each other? He goes, no, and I don't think he would have wanted to hang with me. And I he, was, he said he was really bizarre at that time anyway. He might not have wanted to hang with him. You know, Jan might not have wanted to hang with him because he wasn't— and he wasn't the hot thing happening at the time. You know, John Lennon was sort of in the background. This was a kind of return to form, and nobody really knew what it meant yet because nobody would heard the record, right? And uh, so 
And Jan at that time was very distracted by his friends in Hollywood. And, you know, he would have wanted to hang out with Michael Douglas before he would hang out with John Lennon around this time. And, and you know, let's be honest, the culture had very much changed. We're in a very different place. We're in disco and punk and Saturday Night Live. We're in like auteur film directors of the 70s. This is, is it, the culture has really become ornate and we're in a Baroque period for the countercultural generation. So, but after that, you know, Jan becomes kind of a full-time handmaiden to the John Lennon myth. And, and he because, partly it's because he befriended Yoko and he wanted her have her as a social friend. And they did become social friends. And uh, that went on for a long time. Yeah, that's a, an interesting friendship. Uh, if we could briefly just cover Yoko and, and Yan. I mean, the, the bit in the book that shook me uh, was that they, they go and see the Queen together. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yoko and Yan. Uh, do you think that was a more genuine friendship? Or again, do you think they were using each other for their own means? You know, you can't really separate the two things in the, in the lives of these people. They are one part socialite. They are one part entrepreneur. They are one part people that just hang out at fancy restaurants and have dinner with each other, do drugs with each other. I mean, then they had children and they would go on vacations to the Caribbean and go yachting with each other. And because famous rich people want to be around other famous rich people. And they have a the kind of refracted glow of all of their fame is a thing that they would like to be around. And it, it just buttressed their own self-importance. Now, I'm being cynical here, but this is the way it was. I mean, it's just they were all by this time extremely rich, all of them famous, all of them successful, all of them. And I don't know about Yoko, but they were all doing a lot of drugs. And cocaine was huge in the 80s. And so and they would all be out in the Hamptons together. And this, you know, it's just, it's a a world that we know about and that my, you know i'm in the business of skewering generally but you know because it's like egos right overheated egos and um and it was you know but it tracked with the generational story that we know about the baby boomers right by the 80s they're into money right they're okay with reagan you know they're okay with the conservative thing they'll put a column in the rolling stone that trashes reagan and says left-wing talking points but they're not going to get too upset about tax cuts, right? They're just in a different mode than they were back in the 70s or even in the 60s, especially in the 60s, right? And people were already angry about this. And people think Rolling Stone had already jumped the shark here, as they say, you know, that they had lost the thread during this same period that Jan's starting the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Well, nothing says rock is dead more than having a Hall of Fame. You know what I mean? It's just like instantly you want to put people and stuff them like a, a deer head and put them on the wall and say, we did that, right? So something has ended. And that's also the profound thing about the John Lennon. He did become a kind of martyr for his era, right? And a lot of people wept and cried because they realized that it was truly over when you've lost John Lennon. And so Jan... In many, you know, I say that he can be emotional and he can, but he can also be, and often was, cold-eyed, gimlet-eyed about the whole thing. I remember there was a guy I talked to, just, and this is just about Jan Winter, but he said there's two sides to one, Jan one and Jan two. But he said Jan two has, you know, veto power, right? And it's the side of him that was merciless entrepreneur that always won the, won the day. You can't separate them. People are mercurial that way. We all have two sides, and he had a dichotomy. 
and that was the dichotomy with him. So by the time he gets to the 80s, though, he truly is in his form. And I'm talking about Jan Winter here because he had always been a social climber. And, you know, Yoko was part of that. Yoko was part of his social climbing and getting to have wonderful, interesting, rich, famous people in his orbit. And, you know, God bless him. Who wouldn't want it? You know, but he had it and he loved it. He had no second thoughts about it. There was no guilt there for him, no conscience. And when old hippies would come up to him who had worked at Rolling Stone in the 60s and 70s and like, how could you sell out the whole thing? He'd be like, oh, get out of here. You know what I mean? This is like, things change, move along. You know what I mean? That was his attitude. So for Paul, yeah, I want to say we, we mentioned the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You know, that is the next chapter. And this was when I really sort of cued into the fact that Paul McCartney, in my interview with him, uh, had a real beef with Jan Winter and a little a real axe to grind. And in some ways, it's rightful. And in other ways, it was slightly petty, <laughs> you know, which was that Jan called Paul and he said, hey, well, uh, we want to put John Lennon into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And would you introduce him and nominate him? And he said, yeah, yeah, of course. And then he said, I thought about it. And I thought, wait a second, what about me? You know, I mean, it was it was always two, the two of us. It's Lennon McCartney. Why why him? Why not me? And, and he called Jan back and he said, well, what about me? And Jan said, well, no, we'll put you in next year, I promise. Well, it didn't happen. Paul gave a beautiful speech and, and nominated Lennon at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And he looked up in the air during the speech and well, the next year, Paul was not nominated. And Paul says, you know, he's looking at the nominations and he says, what the hell? And he used some choice words like, what the fuck? You know what I mean? And he, and he was pissed. And so he saw Jan as just completely having reneged on his promise, which Jan reneging on a promise is just Jan being Jan, right? And so he was pissed about it. And then later on, he is finally nominated. And it was his daughter, Stella, who like wore a t-shirt referencing this betrayal. I think it said it's about fucking time or something like this. So it was out in the open. There was a wink about it that, but Paul, and you know, later on, I will say that when I got to know the editors at Rolling Stone and know Jan a little bit, they talked about it openly in the background that Jan didn't like Paul and, you know, just had an attitude towards him and that Paul didn't like him. You'll see pictures of them hanging out together and they'll smile for the cameras but that's how these guys are. They are operating on two levels at all times. There's this, the story of what they're selling in that moment or what they want the world to believe and then what they actually feel. And I was getting the what he actually feels interview with Paul McCartney. And at one point he said to me, he's, he's listening to me, listen to him and accept everything that he's saying and not try to counter it or argue back about his attitude. He goes, this isn't going to be a softball book, is it? And I said, I said, no, I don't, not at all. And he goes, good. And I was like, whoa. And if I may just like finish up the Paul McCartney story, because, you know, it's if you meet Paul McCartney and you have these experiences, you have to dine out on it for the rest of your life. Well, let me just tell you, because this story was, you know, I could basically like die after this experience because it was so remarkable of an experience. But so after we do the interview, I said, I think that's it, Paul. And I'm so grateful. Thank you. He goes, Hey, uh, and he saw that I was really like a into his solo recordings, and I had told him this story that I had gotten to listen to Ram on a quadraphonic reel-to-reel machine and listen to it at a friend's house who's a real high-fidelity geek and how what an amazing experience it was. And he goes, oh, we should go. You know, I can take you a tour around my studio and show you some things. And I was like, okay, yeah, 
I don't have to be asked twice. But he said, oh, have you seen my base? And of course, it was the base that he famously owns, the Bill Black um, base that was used on Heartbreak Hotel in the Elvis Presley recording. And he has this base, which he's had since the 70s. And he goes and he shows it to me. And he starts playing and singing Heartbreak Hotel. And he starts playing it. And I'm just sitting there absolutely gobsmacked by the whole thing. My jaw is hanging down. And I was like instantly pulled out my camera. And I was like, I am taking a picture of this, goddammit. And I was like, there's no way I'm not taking And I took a picture. And so that was beautiful. And it was a gorgeous bass. And the whole thing was just like, is this happening? This is great. So he takes me down into the studio and begins to show me all these instruments and machines that were part of Beatles history. He shows me like a four track that was, it, I don't think it was the four track, but it was a replica or a, a copy of the one that he used to make Sgt. Pepper's. And he gave me a whole lesson in how they bump tracks. You know, we I would record on this and I'd bump this and he's pushing the buttons and he's showing me. Next thing he knows me, he shows me the organ that was used on uh, Rubber Soul, you know, and he's showing me that and playing it. And then finally he's showing me the Mellotron People can go on YouTube and look up Paul McCartney Mellotron, and if you put Joe Hagen in, it'll pop up. But he, I took a video of it. He's showing me how it works and all the kind of like pre-programmed beats that were in it, and and then he pl- plays the opening of Strawberry Fields to me on the Mellotron, and this is the Mellotron that was used on the album. And I, of course, am just sitting there practically wanting to cry because it's just so beautiful, and I just feel. Like, you know, I've been touched by the Dalai Lama or something. This is like such an incredible thing. So after that, he walks me out to the foyer and his assistant's going to drive me back to the train. And I said, well, Paul, listen, this has been a huge thing for me. Thank you so much. I'm very grateful. And he leans over and he hugs me, grabs me, and we hug. And then he leans back and he says... And I know exactly what he's about to say because we were looking at it in the eyes. We both smile. And he goes, touching is good. And I just, I mean, that moment I lifted off the ground and didn't come back down for like two weeks. You know, I mean, I was just like, really? You're going to do that to me, Paul? Jesus, man. I mean, it blew my mind. I have a friend who's a big Beatles nut and a record collector and actually writes for Record Collector Magazine, Andrew Yore. When he heard this story... He said, stand up right now. And I said, okay. And he grabbed me and hugged me. He goes, now I am two degrees away from having hugged John Lennon, and that's as close as it's ever going to get. And thank you. I mean, that's – so, you know, for a person who's a Beatles fan and especially a Paul McCartney fan, it was like a dream come true. And on top of it, I got all this incredible stories for my book, which was – so I won the game on every level there. And I have to say it was definitely by far my favorite interview I've ever conducted with anybody because it just had such a – ease to it. And he was so uh, gracious, you know, and understands what he's a part of. He's a a fan of himself (laughs) and the Beatles, you know what I mean? He's a fan, not in an egocentric way. I mean, he's got an ego, but he understands as much as the fans do how wonderful all this was. And his fortune, his great fortune at having been a part of it and having been born with this incredible talent and being so plugged into it. And so he understood what you want and need. He's a pleaser, you know? I mean, of all the Beatles, he's the pleaser, right? And he understood what I wanted, and he gave it to me, and he was gracious about it. And to this day, I'm profoundly grateful. And I ended up building, as you know, into Sticky Fingers, some really great little Beatles tales. And uh, and I loved doing it. It was wonderful, so...
what a wonderful, wonderful story. Uh, so just to tie up our chat about Sticky Fingers, when the book was published in 2017, there was some quite pronounced publicity about Yan's reaction to the book, which wasn't entirely positive, which uh, I'm sure wasn't a surprise to you. Uh, so two questions around that. First of all, has that changed? Have you had any other feedback from Yan in the intervening years? Uh, and how do you feel about the book now? I Well, I spoke with him up to about a month or two before publication. We had been talking, and he was getting very anxious because when he heard the title, because the title was announced several months before the book came out, he was very upset with it. And we had to have a, like a whole come to Jesus sort of moment. Like a, we had to kind of like have a powwow where I told him my reasons for naming it that, why it wasn't going to be too bad for him. It was uh, yeah, it was really about, and as I put it at the time, it, it well, it was two-tiered. One is that there is a subplot in the book about Mick Jagger being irritated that he called his magazine Rolling Stone because he thought it was exploiting their band name, right? It wasn't totally, right? Because there's a famous song called Like a Rolling Stone. But Mick always sort of took a a skeptical view towards Jan's exploitational kind of impulses <laughs> around the title of it. And so Sticky Fingers, obviously being Rolling Stone's album, was a little bit of a wink to that. It's also a wink to kind of Jan's kind of, uh, let's just say, uh, feral desires and his ambition. And so uh, he's a grabby guy, and he grabbed what he wanted, and he stole things and used people, and he did what he had to do to make this beautiful thing that people love. So he didn't like the title, but I convinced him to just calm down about it, and he did. And then about a month and a half before the book came out, I sent him a copy. And I waited that long uh, because I was afraid he would be litigious, and I was afraid that he would try to stop the publication, and I just did not want the book to be stopped. And his friend David Geffen had attempted to do the same thing and write another bio his biography, and he, which, and he was very angry about his bi biography, Geffen was and went through all kinds of hoops trying to stop that book. And he didn't, but I didn't want to be in that situation, as you can well imagine. But as soon as Jan read it, he was profoundly upset with it. And he never spoke to me again, not to this day. And this obviously became a storyline, and it ended up in the newspapers, and the New York Times wrote a piece about it, and I did an interview with them about it. But uh, I knew that just given his ego given that the book is tough on him because, you know, he can't run from what people thought and said in the things he did. And Paul McCartney was not the only icon of the era who had dark things to say about Jan or just had an attitude about him, you know, and were angry about the, you know, and listen, they're going to be angry because they don't like reviews. They don't like profiles that got written, but they don't like that Jan says one thing and then did another. So there were these, you know, they had their grievances. And there's, you know, if you're a journalist, you, you're not going to bury those things. That's part of the storyline. And so Jan didn't like the book. And I just want to say from my behalf that it was very painful for me to have spent like, you know, four years working on this project and have him reject it so soundly. I thought maybe he'd be angry about specific things. But uh, and his anger about it and his public dismissal of the book it colored what people thought about the book because they thought, oh, it must be a negative hatchet job type of book. And I never considered that when I was writing it. I mean, I did consider it tough on him and comical. 
you know, because he's the thing about narcissists is they don't have any sense of humor about themselves because they just can't. And I thought I can't not have humor in this book because he acts so gratuitously selfish. Sometimes you just have to send it up a little bit. And I wanted it to be gossipy too, because you can't write a book about Jan Winter and not have it be loaded with gossip because it's the, you know, the rock gossip that I had access to was just piles of it. I mean, it was like, you know, that's part of the fun of the book. I don't know if you read um, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls. It's a great book about 70s Hollywood. And I, I looked at that book. I was like, that's a great book. It's so fun. And I think Jan wanted me to take, be more hallowed about the profundity of Rolling Stone, the profundity of the 60s and all this. And, you know, but that had been done for decades by Rolling Stone magazine, right? You know, it was time to kind of put some context around this stuff. And he was a perfect guy to do it because he was sort of the consummate baby boomer who had such high regard for himself and for his generation that in a way you have to tell the story from the back end of the story and look back and say, well, did they achieve the glorious idealism of the 1960s? Well, hell no, they did not. The world is not better. It's worse. And so what do you make of that? You can't put it all in their hands. It's time and fate and fortune and things that happened. But it's not like the glorious revolutions of the baby boomers led to so many great things. And I had to tell the story a little bit more uh, skeptically. And so he didn't appreciate that. But you must know that I do love all that music and I love all, a lot of the writers that he published and my homage to him, which he couldn't see was the book. The book is an homage to Rolling Stone in the writing. I read all these Rolling Stones from the seventies and I was very influenced by them. And I wanted to write a book that felt and read like that Rolling Stone. But he, of course, you know, it's about him. So that was difficult for him. Anyway, that, that's more than you needed to know, but that's the story. No, that's, that's just what we needed to know. Um, well, Joe, it's been a real blast talking to you. Uh, thanks so much for your time. Uh, I'm so grateful for having come on, and I'm really gr uh, grateful for getting to talk about the Beatles and my experience with the Beatles, because I love them, of course. And uh, So thanks for reaching out. <laughs>